We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Both men were from border states where slavery was legal. Both were from states that were torn apart by the Civil War. Both transcended their origins to become legendary figures in American history. One was Abraham Lincoln. The other, our subject today, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, the subject of the book The Reconstruction of Mark Twain, how a Confederate bushwhacker became the Lincoln of our literature. We'll find out how that happened with the book's author, Joe B. Fulton, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Do you know that digestive problems, ADHD, and chronic pain can be treated naturally? In fact, most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine. Find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes. Learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions. For the sake of your good health, tune in to Natural Solutions with your host, Dr. Sean Palmer. Broadcasting live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a cloudy spring day, April Fool's Day, 2011, the 1st of April. It's the time of year when, uh, when every administrative uh, chore rises to the fore and the semester winds down. People have annual reports to file. Bureaucrats want this and that. Uh, the campus is tormented by the oncoming approach of SACS, the accrediting agency that will be visiting here in a year or two, and wants to look in every nook and cranny to make sure we are 
properly educating our students. Uh, and of course, uh, to make sure we're obeying the law, which we are, I'm not speaking for the campus or the university. Uh, this is our legal disclaimer, uh, and I'm sure our guests will likewise do the same. The, uh, the tentacles of sex spread into everything, sometimes for good, forcing you to re-examine what you're doing, uh, and other times it's just a big irritation. Uh, but we present, uh, one of the things we do here is offer internships for our public history students to work in museums or libraries or on battlefields or other interesting places. And uh, we've been meeting this week to discuss the contractual form that must be signed to make sure that the students are uh, getting the education that they uh, signed up for and not simply being used as gophers for, for six weeks or eight weeks by some institution, and we've never had a problem with it, but it does make sense to have it on paper. Uh, the drawback is that the administration sent us a contract which is used by the interns of the uh, nursing school, and they insist that everyone use the same contract, which includes detailed explanations of, for example, how the institution where the interns work deals with bloodborne pathogens. I'm not sure how the Bentonville, Bentonville battlefield here in North Carolina deals with bloodborne pathogens. There haven't really been any since 1865 uh, when they were spilling out all over the place. Uh, but in theory, we were supposed to uh, account for that. And also uh, to, to get insurance policies for the interns. Uh, the nursing students logically do have insurance policies in case they you know, kill somebody. But if a public history student does something, commits professional malpractice, let's say they tell a visitor that Johnston's men attacked on the left flank, and then suddenly they correct themselves, no, I mean the right flank, too late, you've committed professional malpractice, fortunately the student will have a required $4 million of malpractice insurance uh, paid for by the taxpayers. So it's good to know that SACS is keeping track of these kinds of things and making sure our, our public history interns are well insured against the damage they might cause uh, while uh, doing these internships. Hopefully we'll get some of these things changed and make more reasonable contracts and let the med school people do their own contracts. But that's the fun we have at East Carolina University these days as the uh, year-end things start to pile up. We have more fun, though, here at Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, we will be talking about uh, one of the great figures in American history and his connections to the Civil War, uh, described in a, a very interesting new book. Uh, next week, we'll be talking uh, about Eastern North Carolina, but not the university, about the war in 1862 and 63. Uh, Professor uh, Judkin Browning of Appalachian State University uh, will be here to discuss that. Uh, Jamie Malinowski, the New York Times uh, blogger uh, who's been reporting on the Civil War for us uh, over the last few months, will be with us on the 15th. And on the 29th, Jennifer Weber comes back to talk about Copperheads, and that'll get us through to commencement, no show on, uh, on May 6th or on April 22nd for commencement or for Good Friday. And we'll resume with some new shows in May and tell you about those next time. So... Lots of things going on. We had uh, it was a very successful conference last weekend at NC State. Uh, Tom Mackey and Aaron Mast joined me in a presentation. Uh, John Hennessy uh, from the Fredericksburg uh, battlefield was here, was there uh, to present. Uh, Peter Carmichael, who's been on the show, 
uh, next week's guest was was there. I got to meet him in person before the interview. That was nice. And there were many other interesting people talking about all the ways in which uh, we will remember and recognize the 150th anniversary of the Civil War and how we will deal with the public's perception of all these things, how we will interpret the war at our public sites in ways that make sense for the public. Uh, can we avoid mistakes of the centennial celebration without committing new ones? It will be an interesting four years ahead and uh, an interesting uh, hour ahead as we move forward with a final reminder, of course, uh, if you didn't get here through the website impedimentsofwar.org. Go check that out. Mark Gaffney puts it together and uh, lets you know what's coming up and what's been on the show. And it's always interesting to see. The uh, and uh, you can also buy books from Amazon through a link on his website. You can, if you want to get my books, feel free to do that with a donation to. Uh, through the, the site there, $20 will get you all for the regiment or did Lincoln own slaves. I'm happy to sign them or forge Mark Twain's name or anything you like uh, between the covers for $20. There is very little the state employee will not uh, provide in the way of Civil War-related services. And last, uh, what else are we reminding myself of here? The uh, thanks as always to Chad for engineering the show uh, today and uh, with that, excuse me. There, we'll get back to uh, to today's show. Our guest is uh, Professor Joe B. Fulton. Uh, Dr. Fulton, are you there? I'm here, Jerry. Hi. Uh, do you go by Joe Joseph? Uh, what, what's comfortable for you? Joe is just fine. Great. Well, thank you for being on the show. Uh, appreciate having you here. Uh, you are uh, a professor of English. Uh, at Baylor University. Yes, not, that's correct. Um, not a Civil War historian, but you've written uh, uh, a book with a Civil War slant here that, that, that is very interesting, and I think the listeners will enjoy reading. Um, how did you come across this uh, particular topic, from, from the Civil War angle or the, the Mark Twain angle? Well, really, I, you know, it's a, it was a topic that I lived with for a long time before I ever really decided to tackle it. I had written three previous books on Mark Twain, but this one, you know, there were kind of the germs of it earlier, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago. You know, really because there were, there were just these odd pieces that Twain wrote during the Civil War that survived um, that I really couldn't wrap my mind around. I couldn't fit them into what I understood about Twain. I mean, what what we'd always been told about Twain was that, um, yes, you know, he grew up in a slaveholding region. Yes, you know, his family did have slaves for a while, you know. But, you know, he en enlisted in the Confederate militia, you know, but he deserted after two and a half weeks. You know, he said he was exhausted through the fatigue of constant retreat. You know, and so there was this assumption that Twain's commitment to the South, or even specifically to the Confederacy, was really lukewarm or, or even kind of non-existent. And yet there were these strange pieces that he wrote during the Civil War 
um, even, you know, pieces joking about Lincoln's assassination, you know, that I couldn't, that really didn't fit with that template. And so, really, uh, it, you know, it's been kind of a long, uh, a long process of trying to figure this out. And then um, I was working on a couple of articles. I thought, well, you know, I'll write a couple of articles about this. But then Mike Parrish, at, uh, you know, the editor of the series Civil War, an interdisciplinary Civil War series at LSU Press, suggested that, you know, I think you've got a book here. <laughs> so I, that encouraged me to you know, to try to tackle this. And the more I got into it, the more it all made sense. I, you know, it really, so it was not a book where I knew where I was going, you know, when I started. It was really a, a journey of discovery for me as I wrote it, as I researched it and wrote it. And often it seems the best books work out that way. That, that if, if if you know what you're going to prove and you go prove it, then big deal. But uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, when you find something as you go, well, you know the the title. Uh, you say that the Twain became the Lincoln of our literature, and that William Dean Howells called him that. Uh, and and Mark Twain is you know one of the most well known and, and most popular figures in American literature, and everybody has read something by Mark Twain at some point, I would say. Everybody listening to the show surely has. Uh, so if, if he's going to be such a, a popular and successful figure, then if he also were a, a neo-Confederate uh, pro-slavery lost causer, that would, there, there'd be a real uh, you know, disjunction there. That would be a real problem for a lot of, of readers today. So as you say, people have... have Often traditionally, you said, "Well, no, he wasn't any of those things. He wasn't really Confederate. He wasn't really Southern." Uh, but you start out showing some of the things he wrote before the Civil War. He, he was born in 1835, and by the 1850s, he's writing some things that are are pretty uh, pretty standard Southern white supremacy style writings. Oh, they are. I mean, you know, when he, uh, you know, the analogy one of the, one of the analogies I make, you know, with Lincoln. And it, you're right, it does, it does come from Howells, you know, referring to Twain as the Lincoln of our literature. Um, but that one of the analogies has to do with the fact that both men took these, these trips that tell us a lot about the people they became. You know, Lincoln had this uh, trip where, you know, he went to New Orleans and saw the slave auctions, and as... Uh, you know, he said many times that that's where he became an anti-slavery man. Well, you know, uh, Twain, on the other hand, you know, he's born in to a slaveholding region and a slaveholding family. And um, in the 1850s, 1853, he goes up to New York City to see the World's Exhibition. And what he sees when he's there is it's not a kind of conversion narrative the way Lincoln's trip to New Orleans was. With uh, Twain, it was really this kind of confirmation of all the things that Twain had been told were wrong with free society. You know, when he <laughs> when he strolls the streets of New York, you know, he's just, uh, well, I mean, he's just frankly uh, appalled at what he sees. He sees what today we would say, you know, is a multicultural society. 
but he wrote a letter back home that really, I mean, it purported to be a letter to family, but it really, it was a letter that was like many letters that Twain wrote. It was intended for his brother to publish in his newspaper, which he did. And, you know, as Twain commented on this, I mean, I I have the um, paper in front of me, actually, the, the letter he wrote, and he said that, you know, he... Um, saw niggers, mulattoes, quadroons, Chinese, and some of the Lord no doubt originally intended to be white, but the dirt on Hughes' faces leaves one uncertain as to that fact. And they referred to them as human vermin. Now, this is, you know, to put it mildly, it's, you know, politically incorrect for the quote-unquote Lincoln of our literature to be saying things like that. So the question is, you know, really, we really, to understand what he, you know, the whole process of Twain is, is the, uh, of Twain, of Sam Clemens really becoming Twain is, is the point of this book, is to look at, honestly, where he started. You know, what was his context, historically and regionally in Missouri and in his family, and really to honestly look at the things that he said, the things that he wrote, and then to look at really how he grappled with those issues through the war years and then Reconstruction and then through what the implications of these changes were through the rest of his career. I, you know, I want to be clear. I do believe that, that uh, Twain did become, you know, as Howell said, you know, the Lincoln of our literature. I think that his journey was just a lot longer than Lincoln's was. Well, and it, it, it starts further back, one might say, referring to people as human vermin. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, Lincoln, there's, there's nothing in the Lincoln record where he ever seemed to have had a thought in that line. Oh, no, no. But but that just shows, again, how far Twain eventually came. And, and you know, hopefully by the, end, by the end of the book, readers will see you know, the, the Mark Twain of his later years uh, uh, railing against imperialism, against... Uh, hypocrisy and against uh, dishonesty and and in favor of of, of racial and social justice. Uh, so so he does come a very long way. Oh the, yeah, he does. That's mm-hmm. for sure. And the process, though, is really um, you know a very interesting one because it um, Howells, for example, referred to him as quote the most desouthernized southerner I ever met, but. Really, uh, you know, again, we'd have to kind of ask, well, what do we think that Howells may have meant by that? Because Twain was actually, you know, during his life, you know, I mean, in the, you know, when he became, after he was really uh, nationally and internationally known, he was really known for being a Southerner and having that kind of, uh, well, that kind of almost an act, you might say. He did not play the role of the, unreconstructed Southerner, but he did adopt or accentuate his Southern roots. So, you know, it's not really accurate to say that his Reconstruction involves a de-Southernization, but what it does involve is really, I think, two things that work really in very interesting ways in his writing. And um, on the one hand is guilt, and on the other hand is anger. 
you know, and there's a great deal of guilt that he experiences in later years. I mean, after he's seen the, you know, the, what he described as the right, righteous, sacred elements of his youth debunked by the events of the Civil War and Reconstruction. He, he wrote that he was, that in, where he grew up, that from the pulpit, he heard that slavery was right, righteous, sacred. That, that was, those were the three terms he used to describe it. You know, and he said that uh, his mother, and I think there was a great deal of kind of pain and guilt involving this, too. You know, his mother, he just absolutely adored, and you know, he wrote a wonderful essay about her, you know, where, I mean, the last line is very moving, you know, where he says, she was always beautiful. You know, and he meant that both, you know, in a spiritual sense, but also she was physically beautiful. But it's in that essay where he admits, he said, you know, my mother, as kind-hearted as she was, I don't believe she ever saw that slavery was an unwarrantable usurpation. You know, and so Twain really, uh, you know, comes of age uh, in a sense during the Civil War and the years after, you know, but it's it's a painful process because he realizes, you know, he has this sense of guilt and realizes the extent to which, you know, his childhood was really based on some seriously flawed assumptions about human worth and just racial justice and things like this. But the flip side of that, though, is that, um, you know, because there were plenty of, Southern writers who went through kind of, you know, went through that process. But I think one of the most interesting things about Twain is that that's not all there was to the process. Uh, the process also involved a good deal of anger. <laughs> and the anger was, it was directed at the South, but it was also directed at the North. Uh, the reason being, I, I think, that um, his experiences during the war years where he was derided, I mean, you know, here he was, I mean, he was a deserter from a southern militia, you know, and he went west to the Nevada Territory, thinking maybe he was going to find a little peace. <laughs> but you're not going to find peace in a territory that is trying to join a union during a time of civil war. You know, it was quite an interesting environment for him to be in because while it's true that Nevada was largely um, populated with people from southern states, it's also true that they were pro-union. So that limited what he could, uh, you know, how how he could express his own southernness there. What I want to do is take a short break here. We're going to come back in just a moment, talk more about the reconstruction of Mark Twain with Joe B. Fulton. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market 
If you're looking for answers and solutions, you don't have to look to expensive treatments, consultations, and methods. All you have to do is listen to your connections. Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bolin. You are a divine manifestation of love and light. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Joe B. Fulton, author of The Reconstruction of Mark Twain, How a Confederate Bushwhacker Became the Lincoln of Our Literature. And we talked in our first segment a little bit about uh, the background of of Mark Twain, born in Missouri, a slave state, a border state, uh, raised in all the assumptions that surrounded slavery, uh, the, the... and uh, adopting these, living in among them, uh, at least until the Civil War, and then uh, going off to serve briefly in the Confederacy, and uh, jumping ahead a little bit to to explore how, of course, Twain will will reconstruct himself a great deal uh, into to someone with very different values by the end of his life. But Joe, I want to talk a bit about the. the Twain's wartime experience, uh, because you mentioned that he had both guilt and anger were factors in his uh, his own reconstruction, and anger often expresses itself uh, for many people in humor. Uh, you can make fun of things and, and, and attack them in that way without quite as much risk of, of direct counterattack sometimes. Uh, most listeners, if they, if, if Civil War uh, students would know Twain through the, uh, his account, uh, The Private History of a Campaign That Failed, where he describes his, I guess, two weeks or so in the, the Missouri militia, uh, in, in the Confederate militia in Missouri. And I had, I remember reading that uh, many years ago and being sort of disappointed because it, it was just, uh, it was a funny story that leads to. Uh, sort of nothing, no, no heroics, nothing dramatic. I, I'm not sure what I was expecting different from from mm-hmm. Mark Twain, but uh, you know, reading it from a pure Civil War point of view, you don't get um, you don't get what you you might look for in a Civil War narrative. And one of the things that really struck me in your book was the realization that this was originally written for Century Magazine. Yeah. And for the series that uh, all our listeners are familiar with as Battles and Leaders of the Civil War, the four volumes plus a couple more recent ones now uh, of, of short accounts written by participants, 
seen in that light, the idea of, of, of private history of a campaign that f- failed appearing in battles and leaders next to the, 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 the very consistent style that you see in battles and leaders. Uh, uh, and it's not a funny style. It's, it's, it's very takes everything very seriously. The idea of that appearing there, it would really, really stand out as inappropriate and different from all the rest. Right. Yeah, and I actually, that's likely the reason that it was the only piece that appeared in Century Magazine for that series that was not then collected in the battles and leaders of the Civil War, the big four-volume set. And in fact, it was, uh, I believe that Twain's piece was replaced with Colonel Sneed's The First Year of the War in Missouri, which, you know, certainly fits better with the other, <laughs> the other articles in that, that series. But uh, I understand that what you're saying about, you know, being disappointed in terms of um, Twain's uh, representation of his wartime experiences, and I feel like I should even have kind of quotation marks around what I said there, wartime experiences. But um, really, I, you know, it is, as you say, that this was part of the anger that he had that was expressing itself in uh, the humor. And I, I think one of the, one of the things to uh, remember about this is that context in which it appeared but all, you know, among all those other, you know, really serious works about the, the Civil War experience, written by really, you know, real soldiers, and um, and also the context in which Twain wrote it, because he was writing this while uh, he was uh, sitting with uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who was really laboring to complete. Um, his memoirs, which he did just a few days before his death. And Twain, by that point, had become Grant's publisher. You know, so uh, Twain's publishing house, the Charles Webster Publishing Company, was going to publish Grant's memoirs. And, you know, Twain was reading Grant's memoirs every night. Now, Twain really he had a great deal of affection for Grant uh, and a great deal of respect for him. But I think that there is also this this other side to how he was writing his own story, his own quote unquote Civil War memoirs at the same time. You know, where he is really you know, the conclusion he reaches, you know, is that war is just the killing of strangers against whom you have no complaint or argument. You know, and so really it's a a very anti-war piece that appeared in a series that took the historiography of war very seriously, and it, Twain it, was undermining it. it. It was, and it's very subtle the way he does it, but very successful. In your book, you reproduce the maps that go with it, and yeah. uh, there's a select audience that would appreciate these, and that would include people listening today. The... Uh, you know, Battles and Leaders, of course, has all these very elaborate maps with the troop positions carefully marked, and, and those of us who like to study battles can get a great deal out of this. And Twain has a description of uh, he, he and his, his fellow recruits encountering some uh, some dogs that bit yeah. them on the bottom. And he's drawn a map of this labeled Engagement at Mason's Farm, and it's got the country lane and the Mason's uh, house marked out. 
but uh, the best part is that these little oblong uh, rectangles, uh, one of them labeled first position of dogs, and then another one further along, second position of dogs. Uh, it's an exact parody of, of these maps of first position of the brigade, second position of the brigade. Uh, but these are the positions of the dogs that bit him on the butt. Uh, it, That's it, right. The, it, the rear guard. As the, the rear guard, literally. It, it, it made the me rear laugh. Guard. <laughs> I, I would guess the percentage of people who would laugh out loud at this map would be pretty limited, but it's a funny that's map. A really, uh, that's a really interesting point, and I think, uh, you know, I hadn't thought of it in that way, but I, I think you're absolutely right. That, And again, that would relate to the context, you know, and it's um, putting his story and his maps in the context of that series. Exactly. The leaders of the Civil, Civil War really brings out how it's, how it's poignant, but also the humor in it, and it, and it is funny. You know the the uh, his use of the maps there. Well, by by elevating his experience to the equivalent of the Battle of Shiloh, or, or the other yeah. map where he's drawn the seat of war, and it's yeah. just a crude sketch of the four counties in Missouri with Hannibal in the center. Really, the most remote place from the actual seat of war in Virginia, or even in Tennessee. But from his point of view, that's what it's all about, and he's mocking the the, the, the self-centeredness of some of these accounts, where it's all about wherever I was. But but both of the maps do take these conventions of the traditional Civil War map and uh, and make fun of them by elevating a biting of dogs to the same level as Shiloh. He's also bringing down Shiloh. Well, yeah, that's true, and you think of, uh, you know, it's just really the anger, the aggression, really the feeling of, I think in the background, really is the feeling that there is a hypocrisy about the war um, after the war, you know, a hypocrisy that really um, is not willing to embrace the the lessons of the war. I mean, there's a huge debate about what are the lessons of the war. You know, and um, Twain felt, I think, that the war had really kind of, in a way, destroyed his memories of his happy childhood because it had, you know, he couldn't look at them or enjoy them the same way anymore. And, um, but yet, you know, the, uh, the lessons of racial justice, for example, had not really been learned, seemingly. Yeah. Well, he, when you talk about hypocrisy, the, the, mm-hmm. the accounts in, in Battles and Leaders or any Civil War accounts of the late 19th century uh, tend to uh, remember the war romantically uh, to, yeah. to emphasize the heroism and the, the glory of it. And Twain does include in, in his very brief account uh, an account of an actual killing. And it's quite yeah. un unheroic. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, that's true. And that's again. I mean, that relates to the way he is trying to undermine this idea that the war was a heroic thing. I think, in part, that has to do with the fact that he grew up in a border state. He was in a place where it was really the sentiments were highly divided everything it was missouri was the northernmost uh, peninsula of uh, slavery and the sense of are we southern or are we northern it was often a real question 
And when the war, and in fact, where Twain grew up, I mean, one of the um, one of the uh, things I discuss in the book is his attempt to go south to join General Sterling Price's army, you know, of Confederate soldiers. You know, to they banded together as a militia, but they're going to the idea is they're going to go south to to join Price, but they're actually in the northern part of the state. And this is, again, another one of the geographical ironies was that where Twain lived, you know, was really, it was the slaveholding region of Missouri was actually in the kind of north-central part of the state where most of the slaves were and along the rivers. And um, so the northern, uh, you know, strategy was to prevent the southern men of northern Missouri from getting down to General Price. You know, and I think all of those absurdities relate to his view of the war and the fact that the war had in Missouri, you know, with um, bleeding Kansas and, you know, just all of the, the, uh, the kind of the bushwhacking that had been going on in the region for the previous decade you know, really made him keenly aware of the uh, confusion surrounding war, confused allegiances, and the fact that it was not heroic, and it was usually not even fought, fought by people in uniform. No, certainly not in Missouri. We've Just by the sheer coincidence this season on Civil War Talk Radio, we've had uh, a series of books dealing with the war in Missouri. There seems to be increased interest in that. Uh, Mark Geiger was on a few weeks ago talking about oh, really? how the, the, uh, the, the Boonslick, the uh, central uh, region of the state w- that had the most uh, slavery, also had, uh, he described how the financial f- frauds conducted by the, the Governor Jackson caused those families to become impoverished and lose their land after the war, and that accounts for Missouri having less of a Confederate uh, uh, social uh, hierarchy after the war because the, the the planters lost their land, which they didn't do in other state, other Confederate states. Oh, but that, that was a, a separate, <clears throat> excuse me, a separate argument, a separate uh, discussion. Uh, but Missouri certainly is, as you say, highly conflicted and 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 highly. Uh, uh, con- you know, there's there's no clear line between civilian and soldier, between no. uh, north and south, or, or right and wrong. And, and uh, it, it's hard to be romantic about that. But in, you, you make the point uh, several times in the book that while many people, that Mark Twain, you say, is not de-southernized by, as he, he comes around to a, a more, uh, to a different view from the one he grew up with, but he does not join what David Blight calls the, the uh, the reconciliationist viewpoint. He doesn't simply say, well, everybody was right and everybody fought bravely and we should all hold hands now. Right. No, he does not come to that point of view. Um, there, I think really the, um, this has to do with the, again, with the process of how the anger during the war really resulted in Twain being becoming a satirist, you know, during the war, but, but certainly after the war. And I, part of it involved what he experienced during the war in the Nevada Territory, 
where, you know, Governor James Nye referred to him as a damned secessionist, you know, and where he was openly referred to as secesh, you know, and his loyalty was questioned. And here he was writing, you know, for newspapers, for a newspaper. But he often, he really did things to provoke those comments openly. You know, again, one would have to say out of a kind of a aggressiveness. Um, just as one example, I mean, he opposed um, the changing, you know, opposed changing the name of Lake Tahoe. You know, uh, it was, uh, the Indian name was Tahoe, but the lake had been named Lake Bigler after Governor Bigler, the, who had been governor of California. But uh, when the war came along, Bigler was a copperhead. And so they didn't want this, as they said, the waters of Tahoe to be poisoned by copperheadism. So they were proposing that the name change be, that the name would be changed back to the uh, Indian name, Tahoe. And Twain wrote, you know, he was right in the thick of that argument. You know, that, I mean, that was an argument involving Civil War politics, and he was right in the thick of it, writing his article, uh, Bigler versus Tahoe, where, you know, he made a very racist, you know, a series of really racist comments, you know, about the name Tahoe, you know, and uh, went on to say that, uh, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't call a slave that name, you know, but he didn't use the term slave. And so... That kind of uh, article got him in trouble. The one that got him kicked out, though, was uh, of the Nevada Territory, was um, an article that he wrote about a little hoax that he wrote about miscegenation, which you know was uh, you know a term that was uh, coined in 1863. That was uh, an attempt by some Democrat operatives in New York to really suggest that the Republican Party was the, was the party of amalgamation. And so they coined this new word, miscegenation. And Twain used it in 1864, you know, I mean, in May. So it was, you know, he had picked that up very quickly. But he used it in an article where he said, I'm going to quote the portion of the article that survives. He said that the reason that the flour sack, which was, it, the flour sack was the sanitary flour sack. It was to support, it was auctioned off repeatedly to support the sanitary fund, you know, the Red Cross, basically, mm -hmm. a kind of forerunner. And uh, Twain wrote that the reason the flour sack was not taken from Dayton to Carson was because it was stated that the money raised at the sanitary fancy dress ball recently held in Carson for the St. Louis Fair had been diverted from its legitimate course and was to be sent to aid a miscegenation society somewhere in the East. And it was feared the proceeds of the sack might be similarly disposed of. You know, so Twain really, I mean, by using that language, you know, of miscegenation and, you know, making this comment about money that was being raised to provide fruits and vegetables and medicine and bandages to wounded Union Civil War soldiers, you know, he ended up with duels on his hands, and so he, that's when he left the Nevada Territory and went to California and became more famous. They got out while the getting was good there. Well, we'll take a short break, be back again talking with Joe B. Fulton about the reconstruction of Mark Twain. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. 
Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. We all lead busy lives, and sometimes we think we can't take care of our health. We battle food addictions, time restrictions, and media conflictions when it comes to our health. Now, you can tune in to the Dare to Be Healthy Show with host Alia Almoayed. Good health comes to those who dare to take the leap into the amazing world of natural healing. Find out what it's like to look and feel great. And finally, live your life to its maximum potential. Let Alia and her guests show you how. Dare to be Healthy is broadcast live Mondays at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are looking to get started or are currently operating a home-based business, you might be looking for answers. What are the risks? What business should I get started in? How will I market my business? How do I balance my professional life with my other life? For answers, you need to tune into The Home-Based Business Show with Helene Leontos. Each week, we'll bring you a step-by-step practical guide to starting and maintaining your home-based business. Listen every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Joe B. Fulton, author of The Reconstruction of Mark Twain, How a Confederate Bushwhacker Became the Lincoln of Our Literature. We talked in the first two segments about how Twain was born in a slave state in Missouri and partook of the attitudes and uh, views of someone uh, raised in such an environment and carried them on into the Civil War when he served a few weeks in the Confederate militia in Missouri, from which he deserted, uh, took those attitudes with him out west to Nevada, where he still wrote uh, humorous uh, pieces making fun of things like the U.S. Sanitary Commission, and uh, found himself eventually uh, on the run from there out to California. But gradually, uh, and the book shows how this happens uh, over time, uh, beginning to to evolve his views and to recognize the common humanity of uh, of everyone, whether they are uh, originally slaves or Chinese in San Francisco uh, or Irish immigrants, uh, all these people who he would have described in his youth as as human vermin, as he said in that first trip to New York City in 1853, uh, he, he comes to a much more uh, encompassing and generous view of humanity uh, as he grows older, and uh, I thought one thing that was interesting when he when he gets to San Francisco uh, near the end of the wars in 1864-65, uh, he writes a story called uh, Lucretia Smith's Soldier. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that that Civil War story? Yeah, that's a really interesting story, and it's um, well, it's it's about a uh, it's a burlesque or a parody of what Twain referred to as those sickly, sentimental Civil War, Civil War stories. And there's this character, Lucretia Smith, Lucretia Borgia Smith, you know, named after the famous poisoner. Uh-huh. And um, she, uh, she and her beloved um, have a misunderstanding. He goes off to war. She realizes that he has gone to war and um, she sees his name on the casualty list, 
just as R.D. Whitaker. Right? And uh, so she goes and finds him all bandaged up, you know, and he can't talk or anything, and she can't see his face. And she takes care of him, uh, you know, for a long period of time. And it's very, very sentimental, but in a funny, you know, funny kind of way, as Twain writes it. But then, you know, when they're unwinding these bandages, uh, she realizes it's the wrong R.D. Whitaker. It's someone else, you know. And then she has this line where she says something like, well, dog my cats if I ain't been blubbering for the last two weeks over the wrong soldier, you know. <laughs> and it's just, you know, this absurdity of it. But the... You know, it's an interesting thing that that story uh, was really, you know, it was, people loved it, you know, and I think it says something about that era, you know, that there was this, we see the transition from sentimentality, you know, in, in literature to, you know, a burlesque of that and after the war to a more uh, realistic sort of fiction at least with a lot of American writing. And, it reminded uh, me of, of uh, Ambrose Bierce's story, because as you say the soldier enlists because she, she wants him to enlist, she, yes. she, and she, she scorns him because he hasn't enlisted, even though he actually has, and he's too proud to tell her and goes off to war proudly. Yes. And, and Bierce writes that story, is it called Bitten by a Snake or Killed by a Snake? Uh, Something yeah. like that. The, the soldier goes off to war and it, it, it takes every possible risk imaginable until he's finally killed. And they find a letter on his body where this woman has, has scolded him as not being brave. Mm -hmm. So he's going to show her, and he goes and gets himself killed. And the, the brother officer writes home uh, in, to get back at her. Says, "You know, how did he die? Oh, he was bitten by a snake. Uh, yeah. you, you killed him, uh, not." She doesn't get to enjoy vicariously his bravery. Right. But Twain, Twain's doing the same thing here. The woman has goaded the man to war and mm -hmm. ends up the butt of the joke, but it's much kinder than Bierce's uh, story. Well, they didn't call him Bitter Bierce for nothing. You know, I mean, no. that was his nickname mm -hmm. during his own life. And, and he doesn't become the Lincoln of our literature either. He, he's he's well, great in his own way, but he doesn't rise to the level of Mark Twain. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, Twain really... You know, you do see a lot of that. I mean, in, during the you know, San Francisco years after Lincoln's assassination, you know, there was a lot of sentimental poetry and, and you know, writing produced. And one of those um, poems that it appeared, I think, on April 17th, so three days after the president was shot, um, and, you know, Twain just, he wrote an article where he just made absolute fun of that poem, you know, just disparaged it. It had, you know, he wrote this parody of it where there was the refrain, gone, 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 gone to his endeavor, never will sever from his endeavor. You know, it's just awful. And Twain wrote this line where he said, now, the problem with this poem is there's uh, too much gone and not enough forever. You know, and how can you write that, you know, after the assassination of the president during a war? You know, I, I think it's really uh, quite an interesting thing. But I, I should say, I mean, that um, in terms of Twain's reconstruction, one of the things that really happens is his attitude toward Lincoln. You know, really, it changes very profoundly. 
and it has to do with the feeling that I think that antagonism toward um, the North really made made Twain want to hold the North to account for its high ideals. You know, the the high ideals, the highest ideals that Lincoln had, that the war had. You know, Twain kind of used those in some of the later war years and then right after, used those ideals to really be aggressive, you know, in his writing with the federal government. But it really, you know, what it does is it accelerates his own reconstruction into where he really becomes a kind of uh, satirist-in-chief of the government. You know, he's very always very skeptical then of kind of the high ideals and the pompous language, language he grew up with, you know. And, he, he, so, oh, go ahead. No, you uh, well, Anyway, it's, so his attitude toward Lincoln, you know, changes in the, in the last decade of his life. He often, uh, you know, he was the chairperson of a, of a, you know, banquet in honor of Lincoln. He wrote a really interesting letter in support of setting aside Lincoln's birthplace you know, as a national landmark, and really, I think he saw him. He saw in Lincoln a bit of himself, because uh, he recognized, as he said, Lincoln was a man of the border. You know, and certainly that was true of uh, Sam Clemens. And he said in 1907 that um, Lincoln felt the Civil War like the tearing apart of his own soul. And that was certainly true of Sam Clemens as well. well that, so he ended up embracing Lincoln as a brother, I think. And and, and, certain, and showing in many ways some of the, the traits of Lincoln and his own uh, commitment to ideals and his, uh, his venom in his writing uh, or his, his, his parody and satire are directed at, at those who violate those those ideals. While, while we are talking, I want to ask you this, uh, and it's not directly related to the book, but as a, a Twain scholar, uh, the issue that everyone's been talking about uh, this past year, in 2011, uh, is the, the uh, edited edition of Huckleberry Finn with the uh, the language changed. Uh, you, you read a, a quote from Twain in our first segment with the original language in it. Uh, and, of, of course, uh, there's a lot of discussion whether it's a useful thing or not to have a version of the book that doesn't have offensive 19th century language. Uh, what's your thought on that? Well, I... Um you know, I'm always anxious for people to read Twain, so whether it's classics, illustrated comics, or <laughs> anything else, I'm happy for them to read it. But um, honestly, it's just, I think it's a tremendously bad idea. Um, I mean, I, you're right. I mean, I, I think you could deduce from, you know, the, the quotation I provided earlier, you know, from Twain, where, you know, when he went to New York City, that, you know, I really believe that, you know, it's best to just be honest. <laughs> about how things were written and what, you know, how people spoke. Now, I, I will say that I, I think one of the misunderstandings about Twain's use of the term nigger is the idea that somehow that was just how people talked. You know, and actually it was not just how people talked. I mean, Twain, that word really, even in the 19th century, 
you know, was not, I mean, it was considered to be, you know, a racial epithet. It was not a word that was to be used lightly. And you can read Mary Chestnut's diary and see, you know, she wrote that, you know, you never, you only hear Northerners use it. <laughs> you know? Well, William Seward once said to, to uh, Stephen Douglas, uh, no man will ever be elected president who, who spells Negro with two G's, because uh, Douglas used it all the time. Right. And, and Seward said you could never be president talking that way. Right. Well, you know, I think that is a really good example. You know, and um, that... The fact is, is that, you know, Twain really used that, wo- that word in his works because he wanted it to have that negative effect. You know, he was trying to highlight what was wrong, what was still wrong after the Civil War with American society. And, you know, really that, you know, the word is not, the word is not, you know, the cause of the problem. It's the effect. I mean, he... The word really is a is a symptom of the problem tr- Twain was trying to cure, you know. But you can't cure it if you're not honest about it and just trying to hide it or, you know, wash it away. It, you know, it's not going to make things better. It's going to make things worse. Well. One thing that has gotten worse is that we've run out of time, which happens too soon each week. Uh, this week. Uh, the same as ever. Uh, the, the book is a very interesting look at a figure everyone listening to the show knows about, Mark Twain, but we don't think of him as a, a civil warrior because he mocked his own service and uh, his one short story about about it. But, uh, Joe, you really show how his attitudes were shaped by it and how he responded to it and how it uh, changed him in this, uh, how his reconstruction uh, took place over the years. It's a fascinating book. And, uh, Joe, I really appreciate you being on the show today. I was very glad to. Uh, thanks, Jerry. I've enjoyed it very much, and I've learned a lot just by talking with you. And, listeners, I hope you learned a lot and hope you enjoyed, as always, listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management 